Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, April the 5th, 2023. The political spectacle, if one wants to be kind, uh, or circus, less kind, farce, if one perhaps wants to be honest, continues uh, in the United States in association with Donald Trump. Uh, Now, uh, as in all soap operas, we have a series of legal chapters. Um, He's in court or he was in court yesterday, according to the Times, New York Times. His day of martyrdom didn't go quite as he expected, but then they never say he went, that Trump gets what he wants, but he always seems to end up getting what he wants. Um, The Washington Post suggests that he faces narrow charges, um, which might suggest there isn't so much of a case. And across the country, Trump's arrest, according to the Post, is drawn celebration and indignation, which, of course, reflects the divisions within the country. Uh, There were protests in New York City, both for and against him. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Santos fled after chaotic protests. Um, And according to the Times, uh, Trump's call for protest, undermining perhaps democracy, a repeat of January 6th, has fallen on weary and wary ears. I hope they're right. Um, the, uh, The New Republic summarizes yesterday's events as flags, fury and farce. It doesn't speak well of the state of American democracy. And of course, like so many other podcasts, We've done many, many shows on this. There is an, what we might think of as an urgent crisis. And one institute that's been following this is the Institute for Citizens and Scholars, um, uh, a think tank based in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, they talk about this being an urgent mo- a moment for the nation uh, and for democracy. Its president... Uh, is Rajiv Vinakota at the Institute for Citizens and Scholars. And he is joining us from Maine today, where he lives. Uh, Rajiv, what's your take on uh, yesterday's events in the context of the broader crisis of American democracy? Well, Andrew, thank you for having me here. Um, I take what's been happening really as a question of whether or not we have done a good job of developing uh, engaged and empowered citizens, and we have not. Um, The work that the Institute for Citizens and Scholars spends its time on is making sure, uh, ensuring that we're developing people who are civically well-informed, productively engaged for the common good, and committed to democracy in this nation. And we have failed at that for decades, and we need to reprioritize it if uh, there's any hope for us to actually make sure that we have a functioning democracy. Sometimes, though, I've had other people like yourself uh, on the show, Rajiv. Sometimes that language seems to reflect uh, the communitarian wing of the progressive party of the Democratic Party. Can you explain what you mean by the development of of a civic identity and, and, and why that 
escapes partisan boundaries. Sure. And to just give some context on this, Andrew, um, this definition actually comes from a very broad consensus of people um, that I uh, worked with in 2019 when I uh, created a white paper that focused around the challenge of developing citizens. And frankly, that looked even more specifically at what was lacking in civic education in this country. Uh, the three funders of that project were the Hewlett Foundation, uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and Charles Koch, uh, certainly three people who don't usually work together, but who mm. all saw the challenge that we were facing. And then over the course of that year, worked toward this consensus definition. So with that context, let me actually answer your question more directly. Uh, when we think of civically well-informed citizens, uh, they not only need to understand how their government functions and the historical underpinnings of it, they need to bring a critical eye to be able to assess the information that they're uh, getting. Um, and being media and information literate is a critical aspect of that, as well as they're getting information from multiple sources. So that's category one. Category two is being productively engaged. And certainly that means voting, but it also means associating. How do you engage in your community as mentors, as volunteers, or as in the Bob Putnam social capital sense of actually giving your time into associations and organizations and so on? And then the third aspect of that category is civil discourse. How do you actually engage across difference to be able to work together towards common ends? And this third category of being committed to democracy, I think, is one of the ways in which this really expands the notion of citizenry to go beyond bounds, uh, which is the aspect of being able to trust your neighbor, trust government, trust institutions, and then have a hope and a belief in democracy, right? Some people would call that uh, a sense of patriotism, a belief in the nation. And so this consensus definition actually pulls from a number of both progressive and what one calls small c conservative ideals into a larger view of what it is we're trying to do. Rajiv, what's happened in America? Alexis de Tocqueville, of course, came to this country in the middle of the 19th century and saw it as the beacon, the hope, the future of democracy. And he saw this, the, the civic culture and the civic institutions as being core to that. And he very positively compared it with the aristocratic architecture, institutions and culture of France. What's happened? I know this is a big question, but something profound seems to have changed. If anything, America has become like the Europe that that Tocqueville left in uh, in the 1840s? Oh, well, I'm not smart enough to tell you whether or not uh, we look like that, uh, that situation in Europe, but what I can tell you is that the uh, lack of focus around citizen development over the last, let's say, 40 to 50 years has happened for a number of uh, things that have occurred all with unintended consequences, and I'll point at least three major ones for you. One is, um, as we started to worry about the state of education, especially the education reform movement that took root uh, in the 1990s, and we started to really emphasize accountability, um, we focused around measurement and testing. And what we, did we test? We tested math and we tested English skills because that's where the assessments existed. And so as we use that as the measure of effectiveness of our education system, that's where all the money went. And that's where all the focus went. And then about 15 years ago, we suddenly realized that 
actually where all the jobs were going to be as we look towards the future was in the STEM area, science, technology, engineering, math. And we made huge investments in that, especially over the last 15 to 20 years and the professional development that went along with it. Um, and as these things started to happen, um, every time social studies and civics fell further and further behind. Um, I'll give you just one piece of data as an example of the lack of investment into this space. Um, in 2019, which was the last federal budget pre-pandemic, uh, the federal government invested $50 per student in the STEM areas, uh, curriculum development, research development, uh, professional development of teachers, so on and so forth. Believe it or not, we spent only five cents per student when it came to social studies and civics. That's a 1,000x difference in terms of the federal investment. Now, not all of the money comes just from the federal government in the United States, but it gives you, it's certainly a signal and an indicator of where we place the value of this. And then third and finally, I would tell you that over the last few years, as we've been dealing with issues like the pandemic, teacher shortages, other challenges in the education systems, mental health issues, and so on, it's very hard to try to add additional demands right now. And so over the course of the last 40 to 50 years, as other things, as other subjects, all of them important, have started to take priority, unfortunately, developing citizens has taken a backseat. Edelman, the big PR company, has something they call the trust barometer. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds to me like what you're describing is the poor state of the citizenship barometer. How would you measure that? What, what, what makes up? the barometer of citizenship in, in any culture, and particularly in the United States? You know, Andrew, that's a great question. In fact, we actually just came out with a report uh, in February, which for the first time ever maps, uh, how, do us, how do we go about measuring civic preparedness in this country? And we actually- And with that, you're uh, from civic education to a civic learning ecosystem, a landscape analysis and a case for collaboration. That actually uh, is the 2019 white paper I just alluded to that led to this consensus definition right. that we just discussed. This is a newer study that just came out. And what it tends to do is, frankly, add more detail about how we go about attempting to measure this, to let us know where are we on this journey of trying to develop citizens. And in that work, we actually create two maps that look at four major uh, categories of what it is that we're looking in citizens, which is this, do you understand your government? And, and, and there are a whole set of measures that do exist there. Um, do you actually believe, right, kind of the dispositional elements in democracy and so on? Do you participate, right? That's not only voting, but other ways of engaging. And then do you actually connect this And this especially goes back to the de Tocqueville notion of associations as being the connective tissue that actually creates the democracy in our country. How do you engage with each other uh, in daily, weekly, periodic uh, uh, engagement to ensure that you have a constitutional democracy that functions? And so we've pulled these numbers. And now, Andrew, to your question, it is our intention to actually come out with a set of metrics over the course of the next six months or so that start to tell us, where are we on this journey? What, what are the places where we're actually doing okay? And what are the places that we're not? Have you though, in a sense, perhaps put the cart before the horse, Rajiv, with, with this stuff? I mean, we did a show um, 
Well, the Brookings Scholar, again, I'm sure you're familiar with her work, um, Carol Graham, um, and she's, um, she's interested in the culture of hope um, or the power of hope. She has a new book out called The Power of Hope. And what she talks about is uh, the loss of hope, particularly amongst the white working class in America. And when they no longer believe in the socioeconomic system, uh, there's no way to make them citizens, is there? Uh, in other words, my question is, um, in terms of this citizenship barometer, should we be looking first at the the foundations, the economic and social foundations of the republic, rather than its outcomes, or are those is that too simplistic? I think there's a bit of a virtuous or there's a cycle aspect to, to this, right? That if you do the work, if you start to see success in doing the work in uh, wanting to see your government and your society function, that actually builds up hope. If you understand how your government functions so you can make a difference, so you start to see a difference, that builds up hope. And you start to have very much of a flywheel effect. You can enter it almost anywhere. Let me tell you where our organization enters it. The Institute for Citizens and Scholars is focused especially on uh, the young population. We know that uh, there are 42 million 10 to 19 year olds who are entering the public square over the next decade. Uh, my view, our view is that if we do a good job of developing them across all three of these large uh, um, categories, that we will ensure that our democracy has a great chance of functioning and being successful. We're on this very precarious balance right now, and we need to make sure that the, all these young people entering the square actually are not devoid of hope or commitment to democracy, and they understand how it functions and how they can be productively engaged. But Rajiv, there is no, you, you talk about this square, uh, obviously you're talking about it in a metaphorical sense, but as we all know, there is no square. There is no civic square in America. There are squares. We had Niall Ferguson on the show who talked about the digital squares of our social media age. And these squares tend to be echo chambers. So is one of your challenges to build the square? Because I don't see it anywhere. Um, I actually disagree on this. Um, I think that there are squares. There may not be one square, um, but uh, I'll give you two examples and I can give you many more. Um, one is um, where I live in my small town here in Maine, as we discussed. Um, there are multiple ways in which we all interact. It happens to be that uh, here, uh, because we're such a small town, we have one middle school, one uh, high school, people come together and actually vote on the budget. And so there are ways and places where you have people of very different uh, backgrounds, uh, ideologies, economic situations, who do come together and have to make decisions. Uh, another place where there is a square is uh, where people go after they leave the K-12 system. They either go into higher education or they go into the workforce. Two places that happen to be fairly diverse and where you have to learn to engage with people of very different perspectives, backgrounds, experiences. Now there, we do need to do a better job of ensuring that people actually can engage together. But there are spaces that exist um, and where people do not necessarily segregate themselves just into their own tribes. 
What about the role of, of technology, Rajiv? Uh, there was a great deal of hope in the 1990s that the internet would foster more citizenship, more education, more information, more community, more collaboration, more respectful discussion. None of that seems to have happened. Is the problem technology or its application? Are you hopeful that we can re-architect social media, social platforms, uh, the digital revolution to benefit citizenship? Well, I'm both kind of a, a pragmatist and an optimist at the same time. So my view is social media is here to exist and it will exist. And so the question becomes, how do you leverage it in an effective manner? And we have been talking and engaging with major social media organizations about how we can use the fact that they have a tremendous penetration rate into the uh, the, stu the student, the youth population with whom we work, uh, to be able to get better information to them, both in terms of how is it that you engage in your community, and frankly, with stories. Um, I would argue that there are actually many good things that are going on that get lost in the din. And if we can actually get to young people and be able to share those things and have them share it with each other and engage in their local communities, there's a greater chance that we actually not only get them to learn and build the skill set, but also build more optimism about their ability to influence the direction of our country. Are there historical examples of uh, a rebirth of civic identity, uh, even at the beginning of the 20th century? Uh, voting rates in America were down to about 60%, which concerned people. Can you look at the past and say, there is where we revitalize citizenship? Here we have examples of how to, how to um, enrich it. Sure. And I can, in some ways, right, we alluded that uh, Bob Putnam has actually done a whole analysis about how we were a we culture at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. And then, uh, kind of transformed over time into more of an I culture. And now we have to figure out ways to bring it back. You use the term communitarianism uh, uh, earlier in this conversation. Yeah, and he's a hard, I mean, he's been on the show. He's, I always found him an interesting guy, but a rather intolerant, hardcore communitarian who doesn't seem to have a lot of time for anyone who disagrees with him. But that's another issue, probably so, not different from a lot of other people. Yeah, I don't know him well. Um, I have read his books. I am a believer in the notion that actually communitarianism exists in many ways and that you also have pendulum swings over uh, generations. But where's the evidence? I, you know, I, I had Putnam on the show and he never convinced me really. Uh, uh, so we had this shift to the New Deal, to a more collaborative culture, and then it changed in the 60s and 70s. Where's the evidence, Rajiv, that things are swinging back, that we're going back to yeah, the I think, collaborative communitarian culture of the, the 30s or the 40s. Well, I think where you see it most, Andrew, is actually with Gen Z. Um, when you look at the data, it suggests both a real desire to be able to work together um, to make a difference, and frankly, that they don't actually ascribe as much to people's political or ideological views as they do towards actually solution orientation. So that's one of the reasons why uh, we focus so much of our time on that younger population is because they're frankly still developing their points of view, uh, not as hardened, still malleable, still willing to take risks and work with people across difference uh, to be able to make these changes. Wes, I mean, you, you work with them. I, I, I take your point. You work with them at, uh, at your institute. 
But where's the evidence that, that Gen Z is more open, more collaborative, more tolerant, and more engaged civically? I, I, again, I wish I could see it, but I don't. You, you, you have a front row on this. You have a closer view. Sure. I see it all the time. I mean, we have a program that we call our Civic Spring Fellows, which uh, literally helps fund young people who want to solve problems in their communities. And we get tremendous numbers of applications, people who actually want to do good things, um, that they actually do bring people of different perspectives and values to the table in engaging on that. Um, I'll give you an example. How many numbers? I mean, you say you get a tremendous amount. Firstly, how much do you give out? And secondly, how many applications do you get approximately? So um, our program itself is, uh, is, is small because of the funding that we have. But I would say that over, over the last three years, we funded over 100, 150 uh, applicants. Uh, and we get about 10x that in terms of interest in the program. Um, when we did this, uh, you know, during the early stages of COVID, um, we had uh, about 1,000 uh, levels uh, of interest. Um, we had in that first year, we only chose six, but we had more than 1,000 uh, different institution people, young people who in groups uh, were interested in the programming. Um, but we started small and we're growing over time. Right. But you, you said you see evidence. So is, is, is that broad enough? Is that quantitatively convincing i mean you can always find people who will apply for grants but a thousand doesn't suggest to me even a thousand applicants doesn't suggest that there's a profound shift in gen z well you're suggesting that there needs to be a shift from something i'm suggesting that there's many of them who want to do work um and that many of them are already doing it i mean you see it from everything you know go back all the way to parkland uh and uh the work there um, to, you know, the work that, for example, we saw, you know, um, a program in Kentucky where we had a group of, uh, roughly speaking, 20 young people who came together and actually were able to corral the whole state to work together to ensure that there would be student uh, representation on the State Board of Education as they were thinking through the uh, what to think about and do around COVID. So um, we do see it in the local sense. Um, part of it is that we are just starting a lot of this work at Citizens and Scholars. Um, I would argue that part of it from our perspective is more about amplification and that more people start to hear about it as we go into very specific states, we're getting more interest. You work with these people, Rajiv. What, what's their take on the current state of political parties, lots of talk. And particularly, I think, if Biden and Trump run against each other again in the new in the next election, lots of talk about the need for a third party. This has come up many times before in American history, not without much success in the past. Yeah. Are young people looking for new political parties, organizations, ideologies? Uh, young people really are, uh, they are questioning their faith in institutions. Um, and the reason that they're doing that, of course, is look, uh, you're, you're seeing very much of uh, performative role models. Uh, they are seeing, like you, Andrew, and I, um, tremendous challenges and issues in front of them and uh, a, um, a ruling class that is actually not 
doing the work that's necessary. And they're, you know, Gen Z's looking for people to just come together and solve and start to work on these major problems. And so they are very much questioning uh, institutions writ large uh, around this work. You talk about a ruling class. How would you define that ruling class? Um, I don't know that uh, Gen Z would uh, kind of put a very clear marker on it. But when I uh, talk about them in this context, um, they're looking at government, right? And uh, especially national government. And what about guys like yourself? I mean, you're part of the ruling class. You graduated from Princeton. You're uh, a powerful figure within the nonprofit world. Do you think that collectively uh, people on the coasts need to take more responsibility, be more accountable as members of this ruling class and not blame everything on Donald Trump or Marjorie Taylor Greene? I'm not well, saying, of course, you do, but I, I'm talking more broadly. Um, I think that we have to, well, first thing first, as someone who grew up in Wisconsin uh, and, uh, uh, you know, kind of really, you know, now live in a small town of 8,000 people and then also lived in Washington, D.C. for 25 years, I do have a sense that they have very different perspectives and that you need to bring all of that together in uh, actually trying to drive policy. At the same time, so much of this work and trying to make sure that our, uh, our country functions effectively is local and state-based. And in that way, it's really about getting people to engage uh, and to be able to know how to engage. I think that one of the things that is so important with Gen Z is for them to recognize that not everything gets done in Washington, DC. So Andrew, your question, do we need to recognize that there's so much more going on? Absolutely. Do we need to get an understanding that, especially in this federalist system, that you can actually do a lot uh, in you know, small town Maine, in Maine as a state itself, in New England, uh, that can happen. Uh, absolutely. Um, and then you also have to recognize that some of this work is going to take time. And if we focus on every single election, every single time being existential, at some point you are going to get people starting to despair and starting to look at, you know, how is it that we can then hopefully just focus on getting things done at home? Rajiv, we did an interesting show a few months ago with a political scientist who suggested that the, the cleavages, the very uh, radical cleavages at the federal level on political terms were percolating down to the local level. Um, I guess you're not seeing that in your small main town, but isn't there some truth that local politics in many ways mimics federal politics and the same sort of intolerance and cleavages and inability to talk across political divides exist? as much at the local at the federal level? So I don't know if it exists as much at the local level. I can't speak to kind of the whole localities, but I do know that when it comes to local situations, uh, there's a very clear need to just get things done, right? Uh, you do need to make sure that your uh, potholes are fixed, uh, that your uh, operating infrastructure functions in some way or form. And so that actually ends up building more local trust. Um, I can't say, I wouldn't ever say that there isn't, you know, kind of a movement up and down in terms of communication, some of these things happening in a very worrisome level at the local level. 
Um, and I think that the only way you can overcome that is to actually start to work across difference um, and start to do things together, which is much easier to do at the local level than it is at a national level. What about the role of media, Rajiv? Uh, you've written and thought a lot about this, about um, the kind of information coming out of mainstream media, online media, and what people, particularly Gen Zers, how are they getting their information about politics? And why is that so important in terms of uh, our, barom our barometer of, uh, of, of, of civicness? Yeah, one of the most important aspects of developing well-informed citizens is to be able to get information from multiple diverse sources and then to be able to apply critical thinking skills to look at those, all those pieces of information. Look, I have a, a, a high school age daughter and uh, I see it all the time. You get one piece of information, you jump to conclusion, you make assumptions. I do it myself, right? Let me not just, let me just put that blame on, on my daughter. But the ability to think critically and go and acquire multiple pieces of information. And so therefore, uh, being very thoughtful about where your data comes from is critical. Uh, Amanda Ripley uh, calls this uh, complicating the narrative. And it's something that we talk all the time uh, at Citizens and Scholars, because it's especially important in times where things seem so obvious to question and say, wait a second, like what's the other side of the story here? And so the work that we do at the college level, the work that we wanna do with business and so on is about trying to get people to think, what would the other side of this issue be? How do I complicate the narrative, understand it better? Because things are rarely black and white as you know your feed would tell you it is. So how would we complicate the narrative about this latest, what seems somewhat of a, a circus about Trump and, and, and the judiciary and him ending up in court? What would be, in your view, an, an appropriately civic, responsible way of reporting this latest legal saga? Um, I, so... I'm not as deeply involved in this uh, situation with uh, the former president. I would say that trying to understand kind of how to come at this from the legal angle and then trying to get multiple points of view on what's the political uh, rationale for the indictments, what are different people's points of view on uh, on why, whether or not that this is uh, worthy of, of indictment, um, whether this is not worthy of being a felony uh, versus a misdemeanor, um, are the kinds of questions that one would ask. I, um, you know, this morning uh, went to four different news sources to get their perspectives, and they were very different. And I would argue that they all were thoughtful, uh, even within the same newspaper, about perspectives of whether or not um, the former president should have been indicted. So what did you learn? What did you conclude? I mean, you're a sophisticated news consumer. Uh, did you come out of that with more or less sympathy for Trump and his legal predicament? Uh, I did not come out of uh, this view with any uh, empathy for the president, but I did come out of this with a uh, nuanced view of if the indictment happened now, as it did, what are the ramifications? Or to wait for other cases that are coming down the pike and seeing what they might uh, entail. 
and the fact that all of these are happening in a very federalist world where uh, one silo and system in the state of New York can't determine what happens, for example, in Georgia or the federal government, and understanding that you had to make that those decisions as the uh, uh, district attorney had to do just within the context of the state of New York. So if anything, I emphasize I empathize much more with him and the decisions that he had to make. So as, as your institute has said, this is an urgent moment for the nation and for democracy in America. Um, it's no news. Urgent, complicated. We need, as you said, to complicate the narrative, but that's a long-term thing. Let's end, Rajiv, with some concrete steps. What can be done to bolster our citizen barometer in America? What can be done in the next three to five years that doesn't require fundamental overhaul of the education system or of American capitalism itself? The places that we're focusing, because we need to work very quickly, are um, with colleges. How is it that we do a better job of balancing freedom of expression and getting young people to understand multiple viewpoints, uh, working with faculty, leading with college presidents around that work? Uh, how do we work with business? Right, let, let me just jump in, Rajiv. Sure. Colleges, though, are the front lines of the new culture war. They tend to be, for better or worse, dominated by liberals and Democrats. How are you going to actually be able to achieve that? My work with college presidents suggests that many of them want to take this issue on and believe that they can and should and that they're the right place to have the difficult conversations. Uh, part of it is about, frankly, creating uh, the right environment so that you can have those difficult conversations. And so that is the role of college presidents. That is the role of faculty. And um, doing that in an effective manner is really what's being debated right now. So sorry, I interrupted. Uh, go on with a, a couple more points. Concrete next. Sure. In terms Working of, with uh, businesses um, who are uh, employing these young people, many of whom are not going into higher ed, go directly into the workforce. And we're working with them about how do you orient and develop these workplace skills? Think of it as how do you work across difference? If people have different political viewpoints, have different perspectives, but yet still need to work together on the shop floor or kind of in a blue collar or white collar job. And what are the skills you need to build there? And so we are uh, doing a pilot uh, this fall with a set of businesses on how to do that. And our intention is, if that is successful, that we build it out to many other businesses who work with all of these uh, young Gen Zers who are going into the workforce. Uh, and then third and finally, part of this work has to be about changing the narrative. Andrew, you've asked me some great questions about, is there a basis for hope and belief in Gen Z? Can we actually do this work? And so part of what we're trying to do is say, yes, we can. It is worth the investment. We all, as individuals, need to be civic teachers. Every one of us has a responsibility to role model what we want to see uh, to our young people. So it's a kind of Sputnik moment, is it, Rajiv? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.